Amen. Please be seated. All right. Um, so thank you for worshiping with us this morning or this evening. That was just an amazing time of singing praise to our Lord. And as you may or may not know, we've actually been going through uh, the book of Philippians as a church. Uh, and we're going to continue today. We're in an amazing passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And uh, one thing that I have learned is that sometimes the best thing for us, the best course of action, is to have a changed mind about something. Uh, shortly after my wife and I were engaged, uh, I actually moved away to seminary. And our plan was, uh, well at the time, she had two years of uh, undergrad left. Our plan was for me to quit my job and move away to seminary, do a year there, and at the end of the year, we'd get married. In which case, she would come out to the North Shore and transfer schools for her first year, and uh, we'd be married, it'd be great, we'd be in, both in school full-time with part-time jobs, just kind of scraping by, and while this plan wasn't ideal, um, we figured it would work. So that was the plan, and that's kind of where our heads were at. And then one fateful day, Krista came up to me and she expressed some concern about the plan. She brought up some, some points. She said, you know, I mean, this is our first year of marriage. This is the foundational year. We're both going to be in school full-time with part-time jobs. Like, when are we going to get to see each other? Is this, what's that going to look like? Is this wise? She talked about how she was having trouble transferring, and if she transferred to a new school for a final year, She'd have to make up a bunch of credits, do extra semesters, taking classes that she's already taken. It'd be more money. And she's making all these really, really great points. And I know none of you have ever been in this situation, but the, our, the plan was so entrenched in my thinking that all these great points were kind of bouncing off, you know? The, the plan was there, and that's kind of where I wanted to go. And, but we decided to, that we'd pray about it. Uh, so we talked about it often, we prayed about it, uh, we went and sought uh, counsel from people whose uh, opinions we respected and people that we trusted and we, they prayed with us. Uh, we went and talked with our families uh, who prayed with us and then eventually certain family members were coming up to me, appealing to me, just have a changed mind about this thing, this plan stinks, alright? It doesn't make any sense, just have a changed mind about it. And it didn't take long after all this prayer and all of this, the appealing of loved ones for me to realize, like, okay, this plan isn't going to work. The best thing for Krista and I is to have a changed plan and for me to change my mind. Likewise, a lot of times as children and servants of God, we're called to have changed minds regarding our actions, our attitudes, our thinking. Uh, and that's really what's going on in our passage today. Uh, as we're going to see, the Apostle Paul, who's a spiritual father and shepherd to this Philippian church, is appealing so desperately, so ardently, so passionately for this people to change their minds about something. So before we get into our text in Philippians 2, uh, I just kind of want to situate the text. I want to give you some context of what's going on in the background. Um, as we've talked about pretty much every week since we've started this series, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this Philippian church while he's in prison, while he's suffering. And while he's suffering, he's just got an amazing message for this church. And part of that message 
we see in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul urges these people, and, and it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Like, what an amazing exhortation. And what is this gospel? What is this gospel that their lives are supposed to be worthy of? Well, it's the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, came, took on a human body, he suffered, he died, he was risen again, um, so, so that for us, by, by, by grace, that we have faith in him, we are redeemed, we receive this redemption, we're set free from our sins, we're no longer uh, bound to the kingdom of this world, we've been incorporated into the kingdom of God, receiving God's spirit, uh, looking forward to the second coming of Christ. It's this amazing truth that we have as Christians that is the bedrock of our lives. And in Paul's mind, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, Christians have received this unbelievable gift in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only that, we receive this gospel freely, right? It doesn't cost us anything. The gospel of Jesus, this gift is free, but our conduct is still important. Clearly, there's nothing we can do to earn the gospel, right? We can't do things by works that, that counts us worthy of receiving this gospel. Um, we, just, we just can't. In our sinfulness, we're not worthy of what Jesus has done for us. We're not worthy of Him. So Paul is not saying that our manner of life uh, uh, secures the realities of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Himself has already secured those realities for us. They're ours to receive if we receive Jesus. Paul's not suggesting that we need to live a better life in order to secure something he's suggesting that jesus has already secured something for us uh, so it's appropriate for us to respond in obedience to jesus to live in a manner worthy of the gospel and paul is suggesting that this standard of christian living is just really high and that's what we're all called to and while we're exhorted to live in a manner worthy of the gospel we see in the following verses there after verse 27 that we're called to live worthy of the gospel, even in extreme difficult circumstances, even in the harsh realities of life, we're still called to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Verse 28, uh, the Philippian, it reveals to us that they have opponents. It says, and be not frightened in anything by your opponents. That there are people in these Philippian believers' lives who are opposing them, opposing their Christian faith, their Christian lifestyle. They are interacting with people who are opposing their Christian worldview. Verse 29, it says the Philippians will likely suffer for the sake of Christ. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Verse 30, we see that as Christians, these people are engaged in the same conflict that's landed Paul in prison. This conflict over the Christian faith that Paul has received so much persecution over these people are going through the same stuff it says that they're engaged in the same conflict that you saw i had and now hear that i still have so philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to let uh, to 11 is written in the context of this exhortation to live in a manner worthy of the gospel even in the harshest of circumstances does that sound familiar to you at all <laughs> Because it does to me. 
You and I still live in this fallen world. Uh, we experience all types of difficulties on a moment-to-moment basis. Uh, we live in this culture that it just opposes the things of God all around us. We, we face millions and millions of distractions, things that constantly vie for our attention that lead our focus away from God and on to other things. Chances are, as you mature in your faith, at some point you too will encounter opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ, people that give you a hard time for your beliefs. So Paul's exhortation to the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of your circumstances, is not just for the Philippians. It's for you and I. It's for all Christians. It's for us. So as we study Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, we're going to learn how, how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the very harshest uh, realities of life. Um, Before we get into our text, I just want to take a time together to pray, to ask God to bless our time in His Word. Please bow your heads with me. Um, Holy Father, um, this is Your world. We are your people. This is your word. You know us inside and out, Lord. Father, I confess in my weakness, I could never, ever communicate your word effectively enough in my own strength to make a difference in someone else's life. So I just ask your Holy Spirit to come and move within us now that we might be changed people, that your name, as we sung, may be lifted high, that you will be glorified, that you will be praised, that we will hear your word to us today, that our hearts will be soft, and that we will respond to your word in a way that is honoring to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. So our text today begins with this amazing appeal that Paul is making to this Philippian congregation. And the first thing we see is that we are all charged to have a unified mindset. Philippians 2, 1-2, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation from the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So in verse 1, he's beginning with this powerful appeal uh, in which Paul is causing his readers to think deeply about something so that they can then take action upon what is about to come, what he's about to say. And he's making this uh, series of affirmative statements of impassioned pleading, wanting so badly for these Philippian believers to hear this plea, to hear this appeal, And to respond accordingly. So what is this appeal? Let's just kind of pick it apart line by line. Proposition by proposition. It begins here. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ. And what's going on here is Paul is appealing to our common experience of Christ's comfort in light of our common experience of suffering for Christ. Let me say that again. He's appealing to our common experience of having Christ's comfort in light of our common experiences of suffering for Christ. He talks about the same exact thing in 2 Corinthians 1.5 where he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, 
So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. He's telling these, uh, these Corinthians here in that verse that we all share in suffering for Christ. Yes, that's true. That's a reality of our lives as the church, as Christians. Not only that, but we're also sharing in the realities of having Jesus Christ actively comfort us in the midst of that suffering. And why is that? Why is Christ comforting to us just having that? Is it just some crazy idea floating around in the sky? I'm telling you, it's not. Jesus Christ is not an idea. He's not a moral that just floats around. He's, he's a person. He's a God who died for us. And because of the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us, when you know that, when you understand that, knowing Him is genuinely comforting and genuinely encouraging. So what has He done that's so encouraging? What about Christ is so encouraging to sinful people like us? Paul just articulates it so, so very well. In Ephesians 2, he writes, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That people like you and I, sinners, who were once dead in our sins, so far from God, Jesus Christ has brought us near to God, redeemed us, set us free from our bondage because of His sacrificial acts. So if you sit here today knowing that through faith, by grace, in Jesus Christ, that you are forgiven for your sins and you will experience eternity with God in paradise, if you're encouraged that your identity in Christ is infinitely more meaningful than your circumstances, if you're encouraged by that, if you're encouraged in Jesus Christ, then listen to this appeal. Then hear this appeal. And the appeal continues. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, while Paul's appealing for the Philippians to find encouragement in Christ, he compliments that appeal uh, by, by uh, appealing to them to find comfort in the Father's love for them. And knowing the depths of God's love for you is just life-changing and transformative. The prophet Jeremiah, when he is uh, lamenting the, the downfall, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and he's just overwhelmed with heartache and anguish, writes in Lamentations chapter 3, and I hope you just hear this, and I, I pray so much as I've been preparing. I pray that you will hear God's word, this amazing word about God's love. I pray that you will take it in, that you will soak in every word, and that God will use this to change you somehow. But Jeremiah writes, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Paul continues. He talks about this, the amazing realities of God's love for us in Romans 8. He says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything 
else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The text displays how extremely loving our God is. But God is not just, however, loving. He is Himself love. 1 John 4.16, it says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So you can be assured that God's love for you is everlasting because God himself is everlasting and God is love and God loves you. We have this amazing God that loves us. Is that a comfort to you today? Is it a comfort to is it encouraging to have Christ to know what he's done? Is it comforting to have the Father's love at work in your life? Being in relationship with Jesus means encountering this God of love and knowing that you are the beloved of God. And that is a tremendous comfort. So if you sit here today and you're comforted, even in hardship and in difficult circumstances, in persecution and in trial, by the extreme unspeakable love that God has for you, uh, this love that, that never ceases, this love that is renewed every morning, this love of a father to send his only son to die on your behalf, this love of a son to sacrificially offer his, his own life for you and to promise to come back for you, this love of a Holy Spirit that is actively ministering to you. If, you, if this love is any encouragement, any comfort, then listen to this appeal. Paul is crying out, listen, hear this appeal. And the appeal continues. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. Not only do we find encouragement in Christ and comfort in the Father's love, but we are edified by knowing that the Spirit is at work within us. Again, Paul displays it in, in another letter in Romans 5. He says, not only, that we, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. By the Spirit, we're united to Christ, and God is with us always in His Spirit, even to the extreme extent that we are able to rejoice in trial and difficulty because the Holy Spirit is actively pouring the love of a holy God into our hearts. Amazing. The reality of our connectedness to God is amazing. There are no words to describe what we have in God. So if you sit here today, a believer in Jesus Christ, the recipient of His Holy Spirit, who actively guides, convicts, comforts, heals, and restores us, if the Spirit's living presence is at work within you, if that reality is encouraging, then listen to this appeal. Hear this appeal. And the appeal continues. So if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation with the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So Paul is pleading, if your experience in encountering God has provided you with any affection or sympathy, if knowing God has produced these wonderful expressions and, and attributes in you, 
then listen to this appeal. Christian, hear this appeal. So I think you're getting the sense that Paul is very seriously and very passionately wanting this Christian community to listen to his appeal. That what's to come, this, appeal, this thing that he's appealing for is really serious and, and really meaningful to him. And it's meaningful to him because it's meaningful to God. Have you ever wanted just so badly for someone to listen to you? Because you have their best interest in mind. You just want it so bad and, and they just won't do it. Uh, the other day I was uh, watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And uh, uh, Meredith brings this contestant in and as, as normal she, she asks him a few questions about himself. And he starts saying, yeah, you know, I've come onto some hard times. I lost my job. I'm unemployed. Uh, my family, you know, I've got a big family. I'm just trying to make ends meet. Being here is awesome. Any, any money we're going to make here is just going to be such a huge help for the family. We're just super psyched about it. She's like, oh, that's great. And they start the game. And he answers a few questions right. And uses his lifelines. Answers a few more questions right. Before you know it, this contestant has built a sizable bank. And he seems just like a great guy. Just seemed, One of those contestants where you're really rooting for him to win. And finally, Meredith asks him a question, and he just doesn't know the answer. I mean, it's all over his face. He articulates it. He says, I, I have no idea. I'd, I'd just be guessing. And it would be just that, a guess. Blind, one in four, shot in the dark. So she's like, all right, well, here are your options. You can either go for it, in which case, if you get it right, you'll continue on the game with the chance to win more money. If you were to get it wrong, you'd lose pretty much your entire bank and leave with only $1,000. Your other option is you could just walk away now with this large sum of money. He's kind of standing there, just like, uh, he's laboring over it. He's thinking, and to me, I'm watching as a viewer thinking, this is a no-brainer, man, just leave. Walk with the money, you need it. So he's, he's, he's laboring over it, and he finally, you know what, Meredith? I came to play, I'm going for it. And I'm thinking, screaming at the TV, no, do not go for it. This is so unwise. You don't know the answer. You've admitted it. Why would you go for it? So he goes for it. He gets the answer wrong. He loses it all. He leaves with $1,000. Um, but as I was watching, I just wanted so very desperately for this guy to be able to hear me that I could appeal to him. I had his best interest in mind as a viewer. I saw the situation a little more objectively, and I just wished I could have gotten through to him. Likewise, Paul wants so desperately for these Philippian Christians who he loves so very much to listen to his appeal. And this appeal is not just about Paul and the Philippians. This appeal is 100% applicable to you and I. They're not just guidelines for pastors or preachers or ultra-religious types. They're for all Christians, all of us. So that said, what's the appeal? What is Paul going through all of this trouble to appeal for? And we see in verse 2 that the biblical appeals for unity of mind in the Christian community. He wants all believers to have this one mindset among themselves. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This elaborate appeal uh, that has so much passion and he's crafted so very carefully uh, is so meaningful as for unity of mind. And it means so much to Paul and to God that Paul goes so far to say, yeah, even though I'm in chains, even though I'm in jail, uh, even though I'm suffering, it would complete my joy to know that you are taking hold of this appeal, that you are taking this one mindset, that you're being unified with this changed frame of mind. That's how important it was to him. And that's how important it is for the believers and for us. So we know Paul's carefully crafted this impassioned appeal for a unified mind uh, within the Christian community. Uh, But what's the mindset we're supposed to have? What's this one frame of mind, this one unified mind that it's just so important for us to take hold of and make our own? We're all charged to have a unified mindset of humility. And that's what the whole appeal is about. That we, you and I, as individuals, as a community, might be truly, biblically humble. And we see it in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Which reads, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's one of those texts when I read it, it just kind of terrifies me because I understand, yeah, that's, that's simple, right? And then I try to live that out in my life and it is just so difficult. I feel like when I'm, when I'm trying to do it, I'm messing up constantly and it's so difficult, this mindset of humility, of Christ-like humility, it's so difficult because it's so radically different than anything we're used to. This type of humility is, is just completely countercultural and counterintuitive. It's not what we're used to. We live in a world um, that, that promotes go get your happiness and your joy through promoting yourself. Build yourself up. Do anything you need to do to attain power or success or fame or reputation. Establish yourself first in all things. To act in selfish ambition and conceit is a valued virtue in our world. Um, not to use a million TV illustrations, but have you ever seen the show Survivor? I'm sure you have, right? Uh, what's the whole premise of the show? Uh, you basically have to use other people to advance your own spot, right? To, to advance in the, in, in the game, you have to kind of exploit people. You're manipulating others to advance your own position. Uh, and one thing that always kind of strikes me as I watch a show like that is the contestants are always saying, right after they just shafted somebody, yeah, you know, I was just playing the game. That's what you got to do. You got to play the game to get ahead. I want to win this thing, so I was just playing the game. What's the game? It's all about taking care of yourself at the expense of others. Sadly, however, uh, the game is not reserved only for the game show survivor. Oftentimes we get into the workplace, into school, into relationships, and we're kind of culturally doctrinated to play the game, to seek your own 
uh, things first, to promote yourself, advance yourself, consider yourself first in all things. God's kingdom, however, just takes that ideal and just flips it on its end. Completely, radically reverses that whole ideal. While the world encourages you to act in selfish ambition and conceit, uh, to consider yourself first, God's passionate appeal for us today is that we count others as more significant than ourselves. And the truth of that whole thing is that when you're humbling yourself in this way, what you're really doing is you're recognizing that your life is not just about you. Um, You're recognizing and acknowledging that God is the king and we are his servants, not the other way around. And that's why our humility is God's joy. And this Christian uh, mindset of humility is just emphasized all throughout Scripture. Uh, First Peter, it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And this principle that's presented in Peter's text is that as Christians, we no longer have to worry about our own exaltation. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to concern, about our st- concern ourselves with our own status or promoting ourselves, lifting ourselves up, making sure that in our jobs and in our relationships, we are being exalted. We don't have to worry about it. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord. You will receive His grace, not His opposition. And at the proper time, the God will be the one that exalts you. And it will be done in a way that is so good for you and completely honoring to Him. Like I said, my, uh, my first year at seminary, I was not yet married. I was engaged, and during that year, I kind of went back to dorm life. I was living in a dorm with a bunch of dudes, and um, it, was, it was a fun experience. And I, I just remember my first semester back, we, uh, we were all pretty stressed out during finals. It was like a three-week period, and I just remember everyone in the whole dorm were glued to their desks for like three weeks, thinking every single moment was just precious. I can't get up. I, 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 can't, I can't, can't waste a second of this day. I need it to finish. I need it to finish strong. I just want to get my work done, writing papers and studying. Everyone took it so seriously. And I remember in that crazy, frantic, hectic time, uh, my friend Dave would step away from his desk, which was crazy, just madness to all the rest of us, He would step away from his desk. He would go into the kitchen. He would make a cup of tea. He would prepare a snack. Uh, He would go downstairs to our cleaning guy. He would give him a cup of tea and a snack. He would have a conversation with him. And I just remember being so taken aback, just blown away, thinking, who does something like that? It's just crazy. And it turned out the cleaning guy wasn't a believer uh, he was employed by the campus, just cleaned our, cleaning our building, building was part of his job. And he went down and had great conversations with him, loved him, served him, was super humble with him. Um, he, he just welcomed him to our, to our community. And a small, simple act of humility and uh, servitude just makes all the difference. And I want to suggest that a small act of humility like that is really not such a small act uh, after all. 
Um, Dave was intentionally taking the focus off of himself. Uh, he was leaving his own needs behind for a little bit, and he was humbly going and considering someone else and serving them. Just an amazing example example of Christian humility. Uh, in our world's estimation, a simple act of humility and servitude like that is not noteworthy. It's not uh, memorable. It's not really worth anything. It's not great. In God's estimation, however, what Dave did was, was faithful, was obedient, it was kind, it was loving, it was humble, and it, it was honoring to the Lord. Our humility is God's joy. So we're confronted with a question today. <clears throat> as individuals, as a community, will we hear the appeal? Are we going to hear it and let it go in one ear, out the other? Are we going to hear this appeal for all of us together to have a unified mindset of Christian, Christ-like humility, or won't we? I wanted to ask, what do you think our church body would look like if each and every one of us took on this change of mind? What would we look like to our community? I also want to ask, what would you as a person, as an individual, what would your life look like? How would it change if you took on this mindset of Christian humility? As I was asking myself those questions in preparation, I was kind of hit with the, uh, the cold hard truth. And I realized that it's just a lot easier for me to, to be humble and to serve people on church, at church on Sundays than it was for me when I'm in the car and I'm late to work and there's traffic and a hundred cars are flying up the on-ramps, cutting me off. And for me to consider their needs ahead of my own in humility is not easy. So it's been my prayer for myself. It's been my prayer for all of you that each of us will take on, will we'd heed this appeal, we'd hear the call, the urge of God to have our minds changed, to take on this changed mindset of humility. And do you want to know what's really at the heart of this? This whole thing, this mindset of humility, what's really at the heart of it all? It's a daily dying to self and taking up your cross and following Jesus. If you want to have this mindset of Christian humility, you must learn to die to yourself daily, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, And he, meaning Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's simple, but it's so, so, so profound. While salvation is free by grace, uh, following Christ is likely going to cost you something. It will cost you denying yourself for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others and for the sake of the Gospel and for, for the sake of the Kingdom. And as a Christian, you have a cross to bear daily. And part of bearing that cross is taking on a true Christ-like mindset of humility. As Jesus uh, sacrificially humbled Himself, He took on a cross, He hung on a cross, so you and I are to model Christ's humility and His sacrificial character and follow Him on a daily, moment-to-moment basis. God is appealing to us today. He's appealing to us that we will embrace the denial of selfish motives and actions 
and that we may become selfless, humble people. As I was studying through this passage, I I came across a a work by this theologian and exegete named D.A. Carson. And uh, if you've ever read anything from him or if you ever come across anything he's written, I'm sure it's going to be just a great blessing to you. But in uh, talking about this passage in particular, he wrote, What is this if not a principled taking up of one's cross, dying to self-interest for the sake of others? Self-denying interest in the welfare of others must be our watchword. The point Paul is making is that we have been called not only to enjoy the benefits of the gospel, but also to pass them on. In other words, if you've received any encouragement from Christ, if you find any comfort from the Father's love, if you have any encouragement in the participation of the Holy Spirit, any sympathy or affection, if any of that means anything to you, then pass these blessings on to other people by showing them Christ-like humility. We owe humility to others because we've received so much of it from God, and if we, we love Him and we're following Him, it's our duty, and it's our privilege. So this desperate, impassioned appeal, this plea, this call for you and I is that in unity of mind we might adopt this mindset of Christian humility. Our humility is God's joy. So we've studied through the appeal. We've gone through the mindset. We know He's appealing for us to to really take hold of this mindset of Christian humility. Where's Paul coming up with this? Are these his random thoughts that he thinks would be pretty good for people? I mean, where is he founding this? This appeal that means so much to him. And it's clear from the following verses, this great Christ hymn in the book of Philippians, that this charge to be unified in humility is founded in the example of Jesus Christ Himself. So if you want to know what it looks like to have a changed life in this way, if you want to know what it looks like, what perfect humility looks like, just refer to Jesus. So what's Christ's example as presented in this Christ hymn? The first thing we see is that Jesus humbly denies Himself. He denied Himself. Jesus did. That's clear in verses 5-8. to It says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the one that performed the ultimate act of humility. He's a king who became a servant. He's a God who took on flesh. Uh, He allowed himself to die for you. Jesus empties Himself. And this, this phrase that He empties Himself in verse 7, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the phrase. Paul's not saying that when He took on flesh, He's emptying Himself of His own divinity. Uh, some people do interpret it that way. That's not what's going on. Jesus instead is pouring Himself out sacrificially for the sake of His people. He's emptied Himself and sacrificially in a sacrificial way for His people. His self-denial should be extremely personal for us as well. 
It's such a personal thing for us. Uh, he, he denied Himself. He emptied Himself. He sacrificed Himself for you. He considered Himself last because He considered you first. This is so personal. And because of this, because Jesus humbled Himself, we are able to have this transformed mindset of Christian humility. It's clear that our ability to, to do this is, is founded in Christ. We see it in verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this mindset is yours. It's not a pipe dream. It's not some idealistic kind of theory. It's yours. It can be reality in your life. Christ has made it possible for you. We know this theologically. When God created the world, Adam and Eve were able not to sin, right? He created them in, with the faculties and the ability to, to act in such a way that they're not sinning. When they fall into sin, death and corruption comes into the world and to our nature so that we are so sinful that we're not able to do anything without sinning. We have to sin. We're not able not to sin. But because of the sacrifice, the shedding of blood that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins through faith by grace in Him, we are once again able not to sin. Because of what Jesus has done, we are able to take hold of this mindset. It's joyful. This is, this is great news for us. Great news. It's not a pipe dream. This appeal, this plea is not something that uh, it's just some Christian principle that's too stringent to actually attain. It is yours in Christ Jesus. The question is, will you embrace it? Will you hear the appeal? Will you hear the plea? Will you take on the mindset? Will you become a humble person? Um, we also see in verses 9-11 to 11 that this humility, this mindset of humility, um, also led to the exaltation and the vindication of Jesus Christ. It's clear 9 to 11. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Christ humbly and perfectly sacrificed himself, God the Father exalted him. I mean, you could preach a year of years worth of sermons on those verses, but as I just on a very surface kind of level, as I just read through it, what really strikes me is that yes, that's true. God did exalt His Son Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, right now, in all reality, is in a position of exaltation over us. You know what that means? That means. His name really is the name above every name. That the day will come when every knee, yours and mine included, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, will hit the ground in front of Him. When every tongue really will confess Him as Lord. That we really are in this position of humility already. Whether you want to embrace it or not, Christ is exalted. We are not. We are in this position of humility before Him. The problem is so often in our lives, we don't acknowledge it. We want to take His Lordship and put ourselves there. We want to take our servitude and our 
humble place and put him there. And we want a Lord over him, and it just doesn't work. So the question is today, will you hear the plea? Will you hear the call? Will you acknowledge Jesus' lordship? Will you take a good hard look at his example of humility? And will you allow him to change and transform your mind so that we all might be humble like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And I don't ask that rhetorically necessarily. I do in the sense that I don't want you all to shout out answers right now. But I do want you to answer it for yourself. Our humility is God's joy. Now, before we close up, I just want to uh, kind of kind of share with you some of my devotional um, things God's been doing in my life as I've studied through the sermon and through the passage. He's really been challenging me to uh, do more of what my friend Dave did daily. Just put myself aside, whatever my needs are, to... Look at someone else, consider them before myself, consider what God would like me to do and do something sacrificially in humility like Jesus would to bless someone else and to honor God. So I want to leave you with a challenge. Tomorrow, will you do something sacrificially in humility? Will you honor God? Will you do something in humility that uh, whether it be just a simple act of service like my friend Dave, considering someone else's needs, uh, something like that. Do something. Will you consider doing something in humility in a way of honoring God? And then the day after that, will you consider doing another thing? And the day after that, will you consider doing another thing? And will you just keep doing those things until it becomes your lifestyle? until your mind is transformed by God so that you have taken hold of this amazing mindset of Christian, Christ-like humility. Our humility is God's joy. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, Coming before your word and your presence is no light affair. Lord, we take your word to us this evening seriously. We know that you love us and you want us so desperately to be more like your son Jesus. It's hard for us, Father. We confess that, we admit it, and we ask you, Lord, to work in our lives in such a way that we are able to take hold of these amazing virtues, Lord that we really may become transformed in our humility the way that you call us to be. I pray for every soul here, Lord. You alone knows what's going on in their lives. I pray, Lord, that you will meet their needs, that you will be faithful to them, that your steadfast love will be renewed every morning. Father, I pray that you will remember your promises to them, that they may experience you and encounter you daily. Come before you that they may see you face to face, Lord, and be transformed. I pray for our community and our church that we together as one may embrace a unified mindset of humility. Holy God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.